Coming up on Are We Doing This Right? Months. Clocks. Relativity. Time zones. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn. I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. And this week we're talking about time. Ezra, what's our first segment? All right, we're going to be talking about months. Uh, you know, like months. Like Mo- months? calendar months. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So looking into this, I didn't realize that there were just so many different calendars on like Wikipedia alone. But just historically, there have been tons of calendars like, it, do we have more than just the one in use, or is there... Oh, I mean, the only one is really used today. There's some others used in, like, smaller countries. Uh, any major country, they all operate on the same calendar that we do. But historically, there were just, there were tons of different calendars. Some of them are kind of... I suppose it feels wrong to call an, like, ancient historical calendar whack. But <laughs> once we get to it, uh, I think you'll honestly kind of agree with me. So, first off... Um, so the whole idea behind a month, do you know like what a month is supposed to, like why it is the length that it is? It, it's lunar, right? Yep, moon cycles. Uh, originally, it was like the idea that a month was supposed to follow like exactly the, the cycle of the moon. And uh, once people started keeping track of that, you know, like stringing the months together and giving them different names eventually made sense. Um, but so our calendar, you know, like the calendar, it's originally based on the Roman calendar. Um, I think, what is our calendar officially called? Gregorian? Yeah? Yeah. 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 Uh, very much based on the, like, the original Roman calendar. But it originally had 10 months instead of 12. Um, and the Roman calendar didn't have 12 months until 700 BC, which seems kind of late to me, uh, considering so, how off it was. So how long had they had one before 700 BC? So it doesn't look like there was like an exact starting point. For when they started keeping, uh, for when the Roman calendar was like created, you know, it wasn't like like the Julian calendar, which Julius Caesar created. It wasn't like that. It wasn't one particular person that decided like this is what the calendar was going to be. It was just like almost a convention that had kind of evolved, mm. um, and it was like maintained by the Roman government in like 700 BC. That was when they were, like they were officially changing it. But that calendar was in effect until Julius Caesar when uh, they implemented, like, the Julian calendar, and they added the months of, like, July and August, uh, you know, named after Julius Caesar and Augustus Caesar accordingly. So all, all of the months, actually, they get their name from different, like, Roman and Greek gods, which I thought was kind of weird because it's the Roman calendar. So some of them make a lot of sense. Like, January was named after Janus, which is, like, the god of uh, gates and doorways, meant to be, like, the start of the year, kind mm-hmm. of signaling that. It was always the start of the year. Uh, since that month was in effect. And then February actually just comes from the name of like a Roman event. So the month was called Februa, and it was named after the Roman festival of purity, purification, all those things. And then after that, you had my personal favorite. You had the secret month. Hold on. Wait, it didn't have its own name. It was the secret month? It did have an, its name was uh, Intercalaris, which I think comes from like in between, but it was the secret month. Oh, that's sick. You had, so, you know, like, obviously they knew that, like, leap years were uh, an issue. The Roman calendar was, I think it was, like, 346 days, 350 days. It, was, it wasn't 365. And so they needed to have leap years. But instead of having leap years, they would have leap months. And the best part about it is that it was kind of arbitrary. It wasn't officially decided it was officially decided, but it was officially decided by politicians oh, when yeah. the leap year would be. Uh, they just decided. It's like, it's been a while since we've had a leap year. So you would have politicians, Roman politicians, their platform would be like, next year is going to be a leap year. Like, if I'm elected, I'm going to make next year a leap year. It, it, it's, I guess it's weird because like the concept of leap years comes from knowing exactly how long the year should be. So like... It seems strange that they even had that as a platform point, like that they would care about or know that, ah, let's just throw it on there. Like, I assume it had to do with it's like the rest of the months were still without having that to offset it. It's oh. like the months weren't lining up with what was appropriate. Oh, like the seasons and things. Okay, yeah. I got so you. you'd have like January and it would be like really warm out. 
And so it'd be like, all right, let's let's fix that. <laughs> so you, uh, when they had leap years, their year was 378 days long. And so that kind of counteracts. They would only need to have a, they, since they were having a whole month that yeah, they would add on. wouldn't do it very often. No, they wouldn't. And so that's why it was part of a political platform. And they didn't, it didn't really occur to them that they would need a better solution. Uh, and they had it for a really long time. Uh, Julius Caesar was the first one to abolish the idea of intercalaris. So after that, of course, you had March. Uh, on a leap year, you would just go from, or I think it was called, it was named after Mars, but we call uh-huh. it March. You, you would just go from February, leap month, and then straight to March. But March actually got its name uh, from Mars, you know, the god of war. But the reason why is because that was when it was warm enough that you could resume battle. Uh, back then they wouldn't have, you know, like a winter would, you would just pause all military conflict. There was no way you could fight through it. So once March rolled back around, it was like, all right, raise the banners, charge <laughs> the enemy. Let's get started again. April is the weird one. There's no Roman word that April could come from. It, so, it, it has Greek roots. That's the only explanation that historians have been able to find. Hmm. So April comes from, there's no Roman word that it lines up with. It, it's, it definitely comes from the, the Greek god Aphrodite. The month was named Afro, um, an abbreviation of that. But there's no Roman root in that. It, it is basically undeniably Greek. Uh, so we can just assume that the Romans had just kind of adopted little, little, there are other examples where Romans have just kind of swiped little parts of Greek culture. Yeah. But the month of April is the, the one that has certainly stood the test of time. Um, May, a lot less exciting. It's just named after the Roman goddess of spring. June comes from another goddess, Juno. So July and August, actually, you know, it's famously said, it's like Julius Caesar created July after himself. Well, they already had July. They just called it Quintilis. Oh, he just renamed it? Yeah, he just renamed it. So I hear that all the time. It's like they didn't have, um, you know, that he created his own month. And that's not true. He just decided, oh, I'm going to change. The Quintilis is, it just, you know, it's it's numeral based. It's boring. There's still a significant ego involved with renaming a month after yourself. But it's not like he just leap monthed it into existence. Absolutely. Uh, And then after that, you have August, which was originally named um, Sextilis. And, uh, of course, like six. And then after that, September, October, and November, they all came from the Latin words for like seven, eight, nine, and December 10. Before the calendar had been like, the, the you still originally had 10 months, but they had added, you know, when, when they say that the Julian calendar had added two extra months, that's not true. They just renamed two of the existing months. So, okay. So I'm trying to think about this backwards. Where does it go wrong? Why does it start numbering months at six? There's not a clear mark because like January, February, neither of those are named after numbers. Okay. They just started uh, being named after numbers at Quintilis. Okay. Quintilis is the first one. So it went. So it started five, five six, seven, eight, nine. And then the first four were uh, named after you know, actual like goddesses and stuff. I don't know why I'm questioning the ancient Romans. I don't know more than them. I mean, they didn't really know how long a year was, like yeah. even a little bit. They were right. like 350 days, 375 days, some other time. So it just worked out for them. But they weren't the only ones to adopt this like system where you had 13 months. Uh, the Hebrew calendar had the same thing, but their their calendar was a lot more balanced. They would have 354 days by default. Instead of having a leap month by just adding an extra month and adding like 30 days, they instead like adjust the length of the rest of the months. One of their months is named Adar. And on a leap year, on a Jewish leap year, they add Adar 1 and Adar 2. Um, actually, it's specifically denoted that Adar 2 is the default. And Adar 1, like... It, Adar 2 is just called Adar on a regular year. So do most years have Adar 1? No, by default you have Adar 2, but you just call it Adar. And then on a leap year, you add Adar 1 before it. Okay, yeah. I, again, I don't know why I'm questioning this. This is an ancient calendar. Yeah, and the other uh, interesting thing about their calendar, the period at which they add leap days, or they add the extra month, it's seven times every 19 years. So like interspersed it's like two and then like five and then six i definitely got those years wrong uh but it's interspersed not evenly but Mm -hmm. it's always seven times in 19 years and it's the same pattern every time so they were a lot closer 
to the actual number of years. So one of the ones that I guess is the most close and the one that people talk about when they're talking about ancient calendars, oddly enough, obviously the Mayan calendar. Of course. So uh, on a side note, I remember a worryingly large number of fellow 12-year-olds who were just positive (laughs) that the world was going to end in 2012, like beyond the shadow of a doubt. That actually comes from, uh, it's an incorrect interpretation of the system, and we'll get to that. But their calendar is unique in that it has, it's three calendars, it's not one. They keep track of the long count, uh, the Tzolkin, and the Hob. The Hob is, it's a 365-day calendar, 18 months, and you have uh, 18 months or 20 days, and then you have a 19th month that is five days. And that comes out at 365, which was quite accurate for the time. And then they had the other calendar, the Tzolkin, and that was only for religious and ceremonial events. And it was just a secondary calendar that, you know, the same number of days ticked by, but that calendar was only 260 days in length. And then they had the long count, which is a uh, 2,880,000 day cycle. Cycle? Yeah. So that's, it's just like any other calendar. You know, once it reaches the end of that, you just, you start back over, but you tally, you tally it up one basically. Uh, or actually more like tally it down one. So they were basically counting down. Uh, and the idea is like once the long count reached zero, then that's when uh, like the, the Mayan apocalypse was supposed to occur. Now, the issue is in 2012, people were like, oh, the long count's coming to an end. Well, yes, the long count was going to the next increment, oh. but it was not reaching the end. It's not supposed to reach the end until October 13th, uh, 4,772. So rest assured, I'm sure all the doomsday prophets are going to make a return right around then. Yeah. Uh, but they'll be right that time. So at least they'll be historically accurate. That's all the old ancient takes on like months and, and calendars. There's one very recent evolution we've had. And that is, of course, undecember. Okay. So pulling the veil back a little bit, we talked about this. And I still cannot figure out for the life of me what this is supposed to mean. All right. So undecember is you're probably going to get upset when I tell you the origins behind this. It comes from the Java developer platform. Of course it comes from the Java developer platform. Undecember as a concept did not exist, and the Java developer platform created it to accommodate for systems that needed to things like the, the Hebrew calendar and other ancient calendars that might have some sort of uh, need for a 13th month. And fortunately, the Java development platform also gave us another brilliant month, Duo December. Much like Undecember, it's for when you need a 14th month. However, they do not have any systems in place for a 15th, 16th, etc. month. You are limited to 14 using their, their calendar API. So I got one more for you. You know how all good programming languages count at like, they start at zero instead of one? Yeah. Well, uh, at MATLAB, at Lua. Zeroary oh, no. is a month that also exists. Are you about to say in Java? I, I believe it's from Java. I couldn't find a, I, it was harder to find information on Zeroary, but it does exist and it is the zeroth month of the year in case you need to go back one. This isn't your fault, but I want you to know I hate you for telling me about this. You're welcome. Glad to help. When we come back, clocks. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on 91.1 WEGL. All right, so you're going to tell us about clocks? Yeah, so timekeeping has been important through nearly every part of human history. We know back to even the Neolithic age, we had kind of figured out uh, lunar cycles and things like that. Obviously, we don't have like written records of it, so it's much harder to track what they were actually doing. But we have some notices that they were tracking things, at least like solstices. Uh, These were generally, as far as we can tell, from religious purposes. But again, at this point, it's more archaeology than history. Um, The earliest uh, base 60 timekeeping system, so, you know, 24, 60 minutes, that kind of thing. uh, It was in Mesopotamia and Egypt roughly 4,000 years ago. And we still have that to this point. Quick thing about that. Generally, when people say that base 60 is weird or that kind of thing, whenever it gets brought up like, oh, why are there 24 hours in a day? That's kind of strange and arbitrary. Um, Most people, whenever we talk about why we count in tens, we mention our fingers, right? That's generally the only reason we actually do it. And base 60 seems, okay, nobody has 60 fingers. Where did that come from? Um, The counting system that they used and is still used in some parts of Asia 
what you'd actually do is if you take your hand and if you look at your four fingers, excluding your thumb, notice how you have three like segments of each finger. You use your thumb to count each of those segments in rows. So like you count each four finger three times and that'll get you to 12 and you can count in groups of 12 and that kind of thing. So it does make more sense than it initially seems. But that uh, division that or that number system rather has been with us for almost as long as we've been keeping time with anything other than looking at the sun and when it's longer and the moon and things like that. Um, the earliest what I'm going to call passive clocks were mainly starting in like Egypt and early Greece. So Egypt invented the sundial, mainly using not small ones, but like large obelisks. So big things that would just stick into the stand made out of the stone starting around 3500 BC. Um, they actually had more advanced versions of these. This whole class of things is called shadow clocks that had uh, graduations carved into stones so that you could face them east in the morning and then west in the afternoon to get as much precision as you needed. And you can make them much smaller that way and still get good accuracy from your clock. The Egyptians were the only ones we know that were really as concerned with dividing up the day. They had many more innovations in like timer type clocks. So they had what were called water clocks that a bunch of societies had at the time, but the Egyptians really perfected. And what they would t do is take a bowl that could float and they'd drill holes in the bottom of a very precise size. And then they'd put that in a pool of water. And it would slowly sink as water came into the bowl at a constant rate. And they'd have graduations on the side of the bowl marking the time as it sank. So almost like a precursor to the hourglass. Yeah. The hourglass is even, it's one of the more interesting ones of these because we really don't know its history. It exists in a bunch of civilizations, but we don't really know where it came from. And it's hard to tell. I actually, I tried to find it, but like there was nothing there. The Egyptians also, um, because their main timekeeping system was you know, sunlight dependent. They use water clocks as a backup sometimes during the day, but at night they could use a system of plumb bobs, so a, a string that's at or perpendicular to the ground, and sighting to see where the stars were in the sky and be able to tell the time at night using that. And keep in mind, these are all passive with no moving parts or mechanisms. So the amount of precision they could get out of them is pretty impressive, especially with you know, what mostly people think about is that, oh, they just had sundials, nothing else. But they could tell time precisely in small increments, which they used commonly in markets and stuff, but also at night. Um, we also see mentions of clocks just like this in Rome, Greece, and notably Asia. Um, Asia is where we get even more uh, timer-type clocks. So China especially, they had a lot of government bureaucracy, a lot of efficiency, that kind of thing. But they invented candle clocks. They realized that if you made candles of a constant size and gave them somewhere for their wax to run that wasn't just on the side of the candle, they would burn at a constant rate. And you could, again, use that as kind of like a timer. The Chinese also applied this concept to oil burners just with their level of fuel because, again, it pulls it out at a constant rate. For actual mechanical clocks, the first ones we need to go to around the 200s BC, which is still very, very early and aren't clocks as we know them, but they're pretty impressive. Um, the first one were described in Greece. Now, they weren't clocks per se. In Greece, in the literally in the 200s, you had automata. So like mannequins and stuff or like little movable animal sculptures. These weren't like, you know, animatronics, but they moved around and they used complex mechanisms to do that. The ancient Greeks were actually pretty good at cutting gears and stuff. So they could uh, precisely control rates and stuff like that. These were driven with water, but they used gear reductions, and um, all of these are uh, using something called an escapement, which is a gear-driven mechanism that moves in ticks, which is the basis of clocks, but they hadn't applied it to that quite yet. The first people that really applied that were uh, two Chinese people, a mathematician named uh, Yi Jing and a government official named Liang Lingzan. And this thing was incredible. They built a full-on you know, escapement powered clock, which was initially powered by moving water that had a, a full range of automata around it. So things that were like banging gongs, moving mannequins, animal sculptures. And did I mention this thing was a full on clock tower? It was huge. Like in the 200s BC in China. That's incredible. Yeah. With what they had on hand, they weren't that good at cutting gears to any sort of precision. And the thing was still reasonably precise. 
Um, they had initial problems with it being um, not necessarily stable with weather conditions because it was water powered. I want you to guess what they replaced the liquid with in ancient China. Mercury? Ding! Of course it was mercury. They seemed to just have tons of that stuff. But that completely stabilized it because mercury is much less affected by temperature than water is. It has a much wider liquid range. You also see this style of clock uh, throughout the Islamic world. Uh, they were mainly using it to time uh, Salat, a.k.a. the five daily prayers of Islam. But most of these weren't uh, like hand-style clocks. They were mainly alarm clocks that could go off at certain intervals, which is especially important, again, if you're timing the five daily prayers or things like that. Now, these weren't necessarily um, minute-hand precise. They were impressive because they were like the first clocks with what precision they could use, but they still weren't what we think of as clocks, right? For that, you have to go to... Um, what is modern Spain and Portugal, but what was known at the time as um, Islamic Iberia. You had an Arab engineer who was able to create gears of unrivaled strength and precision. And this is the first time you actually see a usable minute precision clock. These had full ranges of automata and even used mercury again as like proto-hydraulic fluid to drive the automata because you didn't have any other thing that wouldn't like freeze in your lines over time and cause problems. What year was this? As far as I can tell, this was in the 1100s. All this talk of automatas is just crazy to me. I didn't realize that so many of these structures existed across civilizations. The fact that they existed at all really caught me off guard, but apparently once you figured out clockwork, the automata weren't that hard to get behind it. That was actually one of the earlier uses of gears. Um, in ancient Greece, the automata I mentioned were for like doing actual work. They were for like wash basins and stuff, but here they're decorative. These clocks um, bled into more mainland Europe by the 1300s where they were used by a lot of monasteries who needed to coordinate their monks for daily prayers. They had very specific schedules for work and things like that. This is the first time you see mechanical clocks really being used. Now, these still weren't totally precision. They were better, but we wouldn't reach precision timekeeping until the 16th century and the Dutch. These designs that the Dutch created, they were the first ones to create pendulum clocks. So think like a grandfather clock kind of deal. Or they could actually keep time by the second for the first time, and they would lose less than a minute per day, which is a huge deal, especially when you're only powered by a falling weight inside the thing. That's incredible. Yeah. Now, these had some problems. The pendulums inside them were not very long. They were very short, and so they had to swing through a much wider range in order to actually tick the mechanism. The English innovated upon this by adding longer pendulums that could swing slower and through a smaller angle and still tick the mechanism over. This is where you get grandfather clocks from. That shape was built out of necessity of having the longer pendulum. That's really where the innovation kind of stops until almost the 1800s. You see minor incremental things, but nothing groundbreaking until then. In 1815, we get the first electronic clock. So this is the earliest days of batteries, dry piles, literally stacks of different metals and acids that could create a voltage. These were electrostatic clocks, which if you put a DC voltage across two plates, you could actually start a, uh, a conductive ball that would hit the plate and then just swing back and forth over time, which you used as your pendulum instead of a falling weight or something. The first real usable one wasn't until the 1840s, though, when they figured out electromagnetism and could use that instead. Most modern-day clocks are based off of something called the piezoelectric effect. Um, have you ever looked at like a clock on the wall or like a cheap digital watch somewhere and seen quartz written on it? Yeah. So quartz is a type of crystal where if you hit the quartz with some sort of force, you can actually measure a voltage across it. So when you hit it, electricity comes out. Also, if you hit it with electricity, the thing vibrates a little bit. That's the piezoelectric effect. You turn movement into electricity. It was first described by like the Curies. I don't know exactly when. I've heard of quartz parts being used to make like true random number generators for a similar reason. Mm -hmm. So in modern clocks, the way those work is they basically have, and even down to like your computers and your phones work like this, the quartz is basically milled into a tiny little tuning fork inside your computer. And if you pulse it with electricity, it's like hitting that tuning fork on a table. 
and that'll vibrate at a very specific frequency. And you can use electronics to count those vibrations and divide that down or multiply it up to whatever clock speed you need. That's why you see those little silver ovals on circuit boards. Those are quartz crystals that are being vibrated at a very specific frequency. The only big innovation beyond that in precision is atomic clocks. Now, you don't have an atomic clock on your in your house. That might be marked that way. It's not. Atomic clocks are maintained by uh, organizations very close to the government. And you have organizations in each country that are constantly broadcasting the time from these clocks that are counting uh, very, very fine changes in outputs of radioactive elements. It's hard to explain over the radio. It requires a lot of background, and I don't fully understand it myself. But it is the most precision we've ever had because of how fast and how regular the oscillation is. It's like it has something to do with how radioactive materials decay at a very consistent rate, yeah? Yeah, basically, yeah. It's counting the frequency of radio waves that come off of them. They have completely changed how we keep time in the modern world. All right, when we come back, relativity. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right? Okay, so relativity. Very, very, very important disclaimer. I am not even a little bit of a physicist. You have sat next to me in physics class. You, you understand this very well. Yeah, I'm deeply worried about the fate of this segment, but I trust you, okay? All right, all right. Don't so let me down. My, my, my biggest point right here is just this is, this is very much an extreme oversimplification. I'm just here to talk about the concepts because I think they are cool. I did not even attempt to understand the math behind this. Um, but anyway... So are you familiar with the theory of relativity, like just vaguely? Uh, somewhat from like watching the Science Channel when I was 12, but uh, walk me through it. All right. So Einstein's theory of relativity, uh, it basically, in, in a bigger sense, it says that like the laws of physics do not change as your frame of reference changes. What is a frame of reference? Like where you're observing something from. So the idea is if you have someone standing on the ground, and you have someone in like uh, an airplane or a spaceship above you, how you choose, like what frame you, of reference you choose to observe the situation from, it, it impacts the math. It impacts what the outcome looks like. So if you're trying to look at it from the perspective of Earth or from a person on Earth, that's going to be, the numbers are going to be different than if you're looking at it from the perspective of the person in the spaceship. That is, that is the point. Um, but the reason why the theory of relativity exists is because uh, it basically is trying to say that the speed of light is consistent for all observers, and that was a really big deal. It's like you had to establish this concept of uh, things are relative to how you are viewing them in order to say that light is consistent. Um, now, was, was it the exact speed that was contested, or was it that it was consistent at all? It was kind of that it was consistent at all. People had been trying to study light for a while, and they, the general consensus in the late 19th century was it basically that light moved through the ether. Uh, and that was just a fancy word to say it was this mysterious medium that was basically air that all things move through. And the issue is it just basically people couldn't find out what, uh, what it was. And we know now because it doesn't exist, but they couldn't find what it was because it's like the math would never work out. And so Einstein had this very abstract way of looking and explaining it. And the experiments backed it up. The experiments that people had already conducted backed it up. They lined up with this. What you've probably heard on like your, your science channel as a kid and what people think about when they talk about relativity is like what this means about time. Specifically the concept of time dilation, which is why this is relevant to this episode. So time dilation, basically it's the idea that time is different depending on what your frame of reference is or how time is perceived is different. I guess not so much how time is perceived, but how time actually operates is different depending on your frame of reference. If you are approaching the speed of light in a spaceship, you are going to be physically aging slower than the people on Earth because the people on Earth, their, their frame of reference is different. But you're not going to notice that sitting in the spaceship. You're time is going to feel like it's moving the same, but you are physically younger than someone. If you had a twin mm -hmm. and that you get in the spaceship and the twin stays on Earth, you would be younger than the twin when you got back. Uh, and that was just, I mean, that's a very radical concept. Uh, it's basically, 
it is effectively saying it's like time travel as a concept is sort of possible. Uh, and not only possible, but it's something that is like exists. That That is what the theory of relativity and its time dilation stuff says. Um, not time travel in the sci-fi sense and certainly not time travel in the sense of going backwards, but in the sense of the rate of time changing. Is there a way that this like affects us normally? Like I, I can't see that being a problem for like any person, but is there some problem it causes or some effect that it causes that's like common to us? The only thing that I could think that that's very applicable, it's when you're doing any sort of math that involves stuff like the speed of light and things approaching the speed of light. And certainly on a day-to-day -day activity that, you know, you're not interacting with things where that would matter. Certain like technologies, that is important. And even if you start looking at like distant space travel or even studying like how light moves around objects, that becomes very, very important. If you're like, especially astronomy, uh, understanding time dilation is just essential. Time dilation has recently been proven with super high precision clocks. Uh, certainly very different from the clocks you were previously talking about. These were primarily built using accelerated like lithium ions. And this is because we could propel lithium ions very, very, very fast. We could get them to about a third of the speed of light. So uh, this was, I think this was a 2014 experiment. They've proven relativity before, but this was, this was very cool to me. So they built two clocks and they had one that was moving very slowly. It was lithium ions basically moving back and forth at a low frequency. And then you had the same thing, but the clock itself was moving at a third of the speed of light. The, the lithium ions were propelled very quickly and immediately, uh, it was very, there, there was just a huge discrepancy between the two clocks. Once you started moving at those high speeds, when you had a clock that was so, so precise, it was just very obvious that time dilation does occur. The numbers backed it up. Another weird byproduct of time dilation is the concept of redshift. I'm sure you're familiar with the Doppler effect. Mm -hmm. Redshift is just the Doppler effect applied to light. Given that light operates uh, sometimes as a wave and sound also operates sometimes as a wave, just as how the Doppler effect makes sound a little different, redshift is just light, the light waves operating a little differently, uh, so they look red. I mean, it's, it's just as simple. The frequency of the light changes a little bit, and so our eyes perceive it as red. So this is what the Doppler effect sounds like. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about the Doppler effect? Yeah, so I'm a radio nerd, so I've learned a couple things here and there about this just for theory tests. Um, the what's, So what's happening when you have a source moving past you of the waves? So think about like the sound as we played a little bit ago. What's happening is that as the thing is moving towards you that's producing the sound, if you're sitting in the car, it doesn't sound like that. As it's moving towards you, the sound waves are compressing and they're getting higher and higher and higher because those points move together, the frequency changes, the pitch goes up. As it passes you, the waves that are coming by it are expanding, so the pitch is going down. Same thing happens with light. So longer or lower frequency light is red, higher frequency light turns blue. That's what's going on. Yeah. I think it's interesting how uh, the Doppler effect, redshift, and time dilation are all similar applications of the same principle. It's a day-to-day -day example of how your frame of reference is changing how you perceive something. Right. Now, here's where things get really weird. This theory is great. It's pretty, pretty well established and proven, but it brings up something that uh, physicists have referred to as the problem of time. I've explained one concept that I'm vastly unqualified to cover. I'm going to get on to another. So there is a huge fundamental issue between general relativity and quantum mechanics, and that is that quantum mechanics, like all theories of quantum mechanics regard time as an absolute. Quantum mechanics are basically, as we understand them, only operate under the understanding that time is an absolute. And all of the, the, the experiments and studies that they've done proving various theories of quantum mechanics have reaffirmed this idea that time is an absolute. Uh, this actually, there was like conflict with Einstein among other scientists at the time because there seems to be kind of an issue with this. One big thing Einstein had a problem with was the idea of quantum entanglement, which is to say that you can have almost arbitrarily two particles that are linked. And uh, these particles that are linked, when one of them change, a good example is like an electron. If you have two quantum entangled electrons and you positively charge one of them, the other becomes positively charged. So time and space are, well, time is not irrelevant to this, but space is irrelevant to this quantum entanglement. You could have, like the speed of light does not apply. Yeah, 
that's exactly the thing. It's an information theory problem. So information is being passed. The electron is becoming a different state faster than the speed of light. Normally, like say if you were sending things down a, like a copper cable, those things are delayed by the speed of light of turning on a signal here and it getting down to the other end of the cable. With this, they're not for some reason. Yeah. And uh, there are a lot of things they're starting to discover that quantum entanglement kind of explains, along with other quantum mechanics that I do not understand even a little bit. But the reason why this is relevant to the problem of time is that quantum entanglement basically allows the two to, uh, to coexist. One theory is, uh, as originally proposed, it was stated it's like differing times among two clocks can be explained as the clocks being byproducts of different universes. That was basically uh, uh, the physicist's fancy way of saying if, if two objects are quantum entangled, then that can explain the differences that exist. So when these physicists are talking about these concepts, when they refer to a clock and to an observer, they're not necessarily referring to a physical clock and a physical observer. These are more abstract concepts. If you have like a clock made out of particles that are quantum entangled with each other, the, uh, the idea of relativity could potentially become irrelevant because you could have a clock that is staying, it, it is keeping the exact same amount of time despite moving near the speed of light because the two, the two things match state. The particles are quantum entangled. And this is one of the only theories that really explains how these two concepts can coexist because we do know that quantum entanglement is something that is established and we do know that the theory of relativity is something that is established so there's, you have a lot of people kind of going back and forth on like how do we rationalize that both of these exist. And it certainly seems like given how little we know about these things, that there are certainly some missing pieces. But it's very interesting hearing the theories between the two. Uh, I know Einstein almost dismissed the general idea of like quantum entanglement entirely because it did – the uh, quantum mechanics inherently – uh, threatened the theory of relativity. It's something that he was very confident in at the time. And so he, uh, I think he called them um, uh, like particles that were spooked uh, was his term. And he he meant that in a very dismissive way. It's like, how could that even exist? They're just coincidences. Something as concrete in our lives as time evidently is something that we don't really truly understand. Uh, in general, it's accepted in physics that time is an arrow, that time always moves forward. And that is just about the only thing that we can prove at this point in time. No fun intended. When we come back, time zones. Your best friends won't be your friends anymore. Welcome back to Are We Doing This Right on WEGL 91.1. So time zones, right? Why do we have time zones? It's probably not a thing you've thought like terribly hard about. Especially, you know, you've kind of thought they were probably pretty stupid because we both grew up pretty near to the edge of one and crossed it relatively often if you were ever going anything close to out of state. Or even up in North Alabama sometimes, you're like right on the edge. It always seemed the worst when you're traveling and like you want to show up to something at 8 and then you're an hour late because you just kind of forgot time zones are a thing that exists. Yep, but they are an important part of your everyday life and I'm going to prove it. So... They exist because of how we uh, like to tell time and because of the lines of longitude on the earth. So that how we like to tell time part. We like it to for time to mean the same thing no matter where we are every day. We like for the sun to be in the middle of the sky at noon and that's how we've liked it for like tens of thousands of years. So this wasn't a really big problem before the spread of mechanical clocks. You know, whatever time it was is what time it was. You were just like, okay, it's noon. And even when we had mechanical clocks, you just set them based on the sky. This was called um, apparent solar time. And each city had its own apparent solar time. And again, not a big problem. You know, cities didn't really have to interact with each other. This was before, like, telegraphy and things like that. And then something called a train came in and ruined all of that. So once people were able to travel... Uh, when you had things needing to run on time, you know, people didn't want to be late, I yeah. guess. Well, it's it's more than people. Before trains happened, uh, this is going to be mainly focusing on the UK because this is where all that started. Before trains, the only real attempt at standardization was in the late 1600s 
it was the first time we had accurate enough chronometers, so basically stopwatches for ships. And we realized that if we had a common time starting point, that we could uh, use that for very precise navigation based on the stars, what time it was, that kind of thing. So the British built uh, the Greenwich Observatory, which uh, displayed the current time based on solar mean and that kind of thing. And mariners could use that to set their own chronometers that they had on their ships. So once you get the steam engine, you start having problems because even going somewhere from like the south of England to the north of England, if you get far enough west, you end up at a point where, uh uh-oh, you're like 10 minutes late. And England is a very narrow country. It's not really a thing you'd have to worry about that with. Uh, Time varies by about four minutes per degree of latitude. So actually, let's back up. Do you know what I mean when I say degree of latitude? Yeah, absolutely. Like on a map? Yeah. So the Earth is divided uh, vertically into 360 pieces. So every arc degree is a degree of latitude. So every time you cross one of those, it's four minutes. And that, again, wasn't a problem until you get railroads. You also have similar problems if you're like a telegraph operator and you're expecting it to be a different time in a, a city that's like basically immediately available to you because of wire and the speed of light. So the railways invented a time zone. They realized that um, the UK is a little over an hour wide by the meridians, or maybe even less. So you could basically chunk it all into one time zone, and it'd be close enough for everybody there if they could figure it out. So the railways standardized early on on Greenwich Mean Time, GMT. Over time, that started to be adopted city by city as they moved off of it. But a lot of people still use solar time. Um, trains uh, would transfer this time station to station once portable chronometers became accurate enough and small enough to actually carry on the trains. So you could sync them up at the main station and then carry them to remote towns and sync the clocks from those. This is the first standardization of time widespread. This was still just England, though. Uh, The first time that we actually see anyone else using the system or a system like we have today where we have one time and then offsets in hours and minutes was New Zealand, a British colony at the time in the 1860s. Uh, They were offset by 11 and a half hours before Greenwich Mean Time, which is not how we normally do it, but not bad for the first country to actually, you know, pull it off and set themselves like that. And again, that's only possible because of the chronometers. I don't know why they needed to set to GMT, considering they were half a world away and we didn't really have telegraph lines like that, but they were the first people to do it. Uh, Meanwhile in America... The railways were an absolute mess. They tried to do standard time and failed miserably at it because no one could agree with each other on what the standard time was. Everyone wanted it to be relevant to their city or where their train was. Well, it wasn't even the cities. It was the train companies that were setting it. So they'd usually set it based on where either their headquarters were or like where their most important terminal was. And to give you a sense of how insane that is, that's like Delta Airlines being like, Showing up in Colorado and it's like, you know, or showing up in like California, it's 1 p.m. And they're like, no, it is 3.15 because that is what time it is in Atlanta. And you will listen to us, Delta Airlines, for we know all. Like, it's nuts. And that was just how they operated for a long time in the U.S. Um, Important junctions like big train stations would often have a bunch of different clocks set to the standard times of the different railways. And to make it matters worse, the railways would publish their schedules using their own standard time. That's the opposite of standard time. Yeah, it's the worst. We didn't have hour-wide zones of standardization until like 1883. This was try two or three to get everyone on the same system. And they finally pulled it off. And that was even adopted by Congress in 1915 as everyone moved off of um, their own solar mean time. Um, I think Detroit was weirdly the last city to pull it off. They were in the eastern time zone until the 30s, and they're in Michigan. But these were not, like, this early system in the in 1915 was not what we think of as time zones today. Normally, they're, like, relatively straight lines that are roughly an hour wide. They might be adjusted here to uh, to accommodate the shape of a state or something like that so that, you know, one part's not in a different time zone. I, I can't explain the map properly over radio but it was wild the borders they chose them to run through uh, major cities train stations they would 
um, come down and just zigzag to major cities. And if you think about this along with like the eastern and western seaboard, you have zigzags down like the coast or the inner border of California and down the eastern coast through the Carolinas. Like mountain and central time were like twice as wide as eastern and Pacific time zones. Like at one point, the Pacific time actually loops under mountain time so that you could go south and end up in a different time zone. Was what was the reasoning behind the, I guess, gerrymandering of the lines? They were set up by the railway companies. They weren't set up to be everyone's time zone, but the railway companies were like, we're using this one and we want this. This is our territory. We get to set the time zones. And so they did. By the 1930s, we had pretty much fixed it. Uh, the entire world was basically on hour wide, actually reasonable chunks at that point. Um, the last one to adopt that system was Nepal in 1956. Uh, these were all based on Greenwich Mean Time at this point using their zero and then offsets in generally even numbers of hours at that point. Nepal was like five hours and 45 minutes. I think there are a couple other that act like that now, but most of them are even numbers of hours. Like Central Standard Time, that's negative six from Greenwich Mean Time, which we still use as the zero point. The Britons won that, huh? Yeah, I mean, you know, if there's already a standard in place, you shouldn't make a new one unless it's, like, bad. Now, I mentioned Nepal being a weird time zone. There actually is a bigger problem with the current system. So if everything, if you set a zero point at the Greenwich Observatory, which is on the prime meridian, so zero degrees on every map, well, if you go around to the other side, there's a seam between 12 hours plus offset and 12 hours minus offset. That's called the International Dateline, and it's in the middle of the Pacific Ocean, which doesn't cause problems for many people unless you're very close to that. Um, there's a former British colony called Kiribati in the Pacific Ocean. Their main trading partner is Australia, and they were on opposite sides of the International Dateline. And normally you'd stay there. like they, you know, It doesn't matter what day it is to your residents. Unless Australia is like your biggest and really only trading partner and your Sunday is their Monday. You're missing out on days of work with them. So their solution in 1994, let's just not do December 31st. They went straight from December 30th. They were like, it's January 1. Good morning, Australia. Like they just showed up and they can do that. <laughs> Like, they, they just hopped to the other side of the line, and it, it has worked out very well for them. Did they have to get any sort of, like, global approval, or did they just decide to? I mean, kind of. Uh, there's actually a weird side effect of it. You can choose what side of the, the line you're on if you're very close to it. But what it did was, for ships at sea, as far as they're concerned, it's still the day before. Your island is surrounded by what's called an enclave, which means you're completely surrounded by some other zone. Generally, that's referred to countries that are completely surrounded by other countries. Think like the Vatican City. That's an enclave of Italy. They are an enclave of Sunday and they are Monday. Like, so as far as the ocean is concerned, it's still Sunday. But on the island, Monday, <laughs> they didn't change the dateline. They just changed how they count the time. This also had the fun side effect of them technically being the first people when the millennium rolled over. <laughs> To actually hit it, even though they were supposed to be, like, the last. Very strange. Yeah, I mean, you know, that's what happens when you standardize like that. There has to be a seam somewhere. Uh, modern time zones are generally rational, though. These are actually, uh, all the terminology and the lengths of everything is defined by a standard called ISO 8061. ISO is an organization that works really closely with the UN. They just find all sorts of standards, that kind of thing. Um, GMT is now referred to as UTC or Universal Coordinated Time. I know the acronym doesn't ma match up. No one will tell me why. It's the same way with ISO. It also defines things like the 24-hour day, 60 minutes, or yeah, 60 minute hours, 60 second minutes, that kind of thing. And aside from like daylight savings time, we're pretty much lockstep with the rest of the world. Most countries don't do that because it's stupid and we shouldn't do it either. But you know, we still use the imperial system. That's the least of our problems. Uh, the only real weird thing about that is how we set the time because now it's international and also leap seconds, which I'm going to get to in a minute. So the, the time 
the time, UTC, is set based off of a, secre- a separate number called uh, International Atomic Time. There's an organization that handles this called the International Telecommunications Union. They handle like radio frequency allocations and stuff. They work with the UN. Uh, they have a network of 400 atomic clocks that are then weighted average together. And each of the facilities that holds one of these atomic clocks constantly broadcasts their current estimate of the time. Now, here's the issue. IAT and UTC are not the same time. Uh, Earth is not rotating at a perfect 24 hours per day. And we are actually gradually slowing down at not like a noticeable rate, but we are slowing down. Seconds. Yeah, seconds. So every couple years, we just have to add a second to the clock to make up for it. Another organization, the International Earth Rotation and Reference System Service, great name, uh, decides whenever we add a second, which causes, I won't say it causes massive problems because they notify people up to six months in advance of when it's going to happen. Usually either on December 31st or like June 30th, that's actually the only two dates. Uh, We are currently at 37 with the last being added in 2016 since we started this in the 70s. Um, This causes horrific problems in uh, computing and time zones and programming, which if you're interested in, there's a great Tom Scott video on it, I think on the Computer File YouTube channel called The Problem with Time Zones. We seem to have mostly figured out, but it is incredible how, how seemingly clean of a system it is up to that point. And then they're just like, hey, we need you to add 37 seconds to that number because we said so. Bye. That's how you end up with stuff like Undecember. Yeah, that's how you end up with stuff like Undecember. But you know what? I still, I like our current system of time zones. I think we've figured it out and I'm very, very happy with it. Thank you for listening to Are We Doing This Right? You can listen live every week, Sundays at 3 on WEGL 91.1 in Auburn or on your smart speaker. Just say listen to WEGL. You can also listen to us wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for AWDTR. I'm Grayson. I'm Ezra. Thank you for listening. Yeah.